What is good, everybody? I hope y'all had a great Mother's Day weekend, or a great weekend in general, if you're not listening to this right after Mother's Day weekend. Uh, This is probably going to be a shorter episode this week, uh, because I celebrated my daughter's first birthday this week, and we also celebrated my amazing wife and my mom for Mother's Day, so my week was pretty packed. However, I do want to take some time today to talk about something that we kind of hit at a little bit last episode, but it served more of an illustrative purpose for the Rakia, and that is the waters above, the waters that are depicted as being above the Rakia, the waters that God is separating in Genesis 1. And on a surface read with no knowledge or insight into the culture that is writing this, we can assume that all that's really going on here is just the creation of oceans or clouds or or something like that. However, as we just learned last episode, there is a lot more to Genesis than meets the eye. And we now know that the Bible's cosmology and the way that the Bible talks about reality is different than the way that we do. And the biblical authors really did view the sky as being some sort of solid dome structure that holds back the many waters that are above it. But we may ask ourselves, well, why are these waters important? What are they and what can we learn about God from his actions that he takes in regards to these waters in Genesis 1. And in order to find this out, we'll have to do what we've been doing throughout this whole series, and we'll have to go to the Bible to see what the Bible says on its own terms about these waters above. But also, we're going to take our first journey into extra-biblical texts that are from the surrounding cultures and myths and beliefs about these chaotic waters that fill the earth and the waters that are above the Rakia. So I hope you're ready. This is going to be fun. But before we hop into a lot of the surrounding culture stuff, let's start back again in Genesis 1 and just try and get a recap of what's going on here. So Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was formless and void, or better understood, wild and waste. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face or the surface of the waters. So, in the narrative sequence of creation, there are a few things that have to be overcome. In order for life to sustain on earth, there are some things that have to be overcome. And unfortunately, we're met immediately with these two obstacles. If we were reading this as a narrative the way it's supposed to be, we would first read, hey, in the beginning, God created all of this. We would think, oh, awesome, great. And then the very first thing that we're met with is, oh, by the way, this place that we now live at one point, it was wild. And it was waste. And And there was darkness. And there was just water. And these are 
some of the main obstacles to human life is darkness for obvious reasons because without light without the sun we we can't see we can't operate uh crops and all the things that we need to grow to sustain life can't grow in without light and the heat that it radiates you you get where i'm going here so that's the first obstacle is darkness and the second is uncontrollable water i mean one of the most instinctual understandings that humans possess is the realization that the land is our space. The land is human space. And the water, that that's not really our space. That's why we've barely even discovered just a, the smallest fraction of the entire oceans on the earth because it's very clear that we were not built to live, to thrive, and to survive in the open waters. That is not our habitat. So naturally, waters are seen as an obstacle to human life. So we're met with these two problems in the opening lines of Genesis. And the way that we're supposed to read this is we're supposed to think, oh no, well, well, this isn't good. In order for life to then flourish, these things have to be overcome. And the next step in the narrative is that very thing is God takes care of the first obstacle, which is darkness. And we'll get into the importance of that at a later episode. But the very next step that happens after taking care of darkness is that God takes care of the obstacle of chaotic, non-life-permitting waters. And we read this passage last week, um, focusing on the rakia, but this time let's focus on what happens with the waters. And this is, once again, Genesis 1, verse 6 through 8. This is God now taking care of the obstacles of these chaotic waters. And God said, let there be a rakia in the midst of these waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the rakia and separated those waters that were under the rakia from the waters that were above the rakia. And it was so. And God called the Rakia heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So focusing on the waters here, God now takes the first steps in controlling these chaotic waters by separating them. And as we learned last week, he separates them with this dome-like structure that's called the Rakia. And these concepts seem foreign to us and maybe even wrong because that's just not how we view reality, but to an ancient Israelite, this idea of there being waters above this solid dome, and then obviously the waters here on earth, that would have been completely normal. That was the common way of viewing the cosmos. And to illustrate this point, this is where we will enter into ancient Israel's surrounding cultures and their beliefs and their views on creation myths to better help us understand the shared view of the cosmos that many of these groups had. And we're going to read from two different Old Testament and Hebrew uh, scholars here, and they've done a lot of work in looking at other surrounding cultures, views, and, and creation accounts. And they point out, obviously, a lot of differences between the Bible and these accounts, but they also point out some of the similarities, some of the just the 
cultural understandings of how the world is ordered. And one interesting one is pointed out by Ben Stanhope in his book, Misinterpreting Genesis. And this is actually a very great book, a very solid book. I've recommended it before, but especially for this whole discussion on Genesis, I would highly recommend it if anybody wants to look into it a little bit more. But this one comes from the Babylonian creation myth called Enuma Elish. You may have heard of this before. And he he points out a part of this Enuma Elish tablet. Uh, It's 136 to 140 if anybody ever wanted to look this up. And it says this, it says Marduk, which is one of their gods, split her, which is Tiamat, in half like a dried fish. Then he set half of her up and made the heavens as a roof. He stretched out a skin and assigned a guard to hold it in place. He ordered them not to let her waters escape. So here in in this account, this Babylonian creation myth, it talks about one of their gods fighting and splitting in half Tiamat, which is the the god of the sea. And he sets her up as a roof in the skies in order to hold back the waters. Now, does that sound familiar to what we just read in in Genesis, where we're told that God created a rakia in the midst of the waters to separate the waters above and the waters below so that the waters above can't come crashing back down and, and cause this chaotic state of disorder. It's very, very similar. And I think it's similar because they're just sharing the same way of viewing the cosmos that there is water up there above this sky. And obviously the sky has to be hard in order to hold back the waters. Now, one thing that's not happening is the Bible is not stealing from these other creation myths. The Bible does not believe in Israel, did not believe that there were really uh, these gods like Marduk and Tiamat that did these things. It's very clear from Genesis that the biblical authors believe in one God, one all-powerful God that created this, but they are telling their way that, that Yahweh brought about the creation as they understand it, that differs from how Babylon or other cultures viewed how their world became created. Here's another author that we're going to look at, uh, Old, Tes- Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman III in his book, How to Read Genesis, another very solid book uh, if you want to get some understanding on how to read Genesis. And this is a lot longer of a quote, but this one really helps understand how Israel would have even been in contact with these other creation myths and other views. And it's very, very insightful. He says, quote, From the time of the patriarchs down through the rest of the period of the Old Testament, the children of Abraham lived in the midst of a pagan world. Only Israel worshipped Yahweh, while the rest of the nations had their own gods and goddesses, and they also had their own creation accounts. Since Yahweh's people were constantly tempted to worship the deities of the other nations, we shouldn't be surprised that the biblical accounts of creation were shaped in such a way as to provide a clear distinction from those of other nations. Even so, there are similarities, 
And in any case, the most interesting and the richest reading of the biblical creation accounts takes place in light of the rival accounts of the ancient Near East. End quote. So what he's saying is, is hey, the the Old Testament is very upfront and very clear that Israel was not secluded. Although the law told them to stay away from the customs of these other nations, we know throughout the entire Old Testament that Israel failed time and time again. They worshipped other gods. They, they fell prey to these other cultures and other religions over and over and over again. This is uh, the big reason that they went into the Babylonian exile and they were taken over by other rulers. We know about this happening. It's very, very clear. And he's saying, so with that being the case, we, we know that Israel was, was in contact with all these other worldviews, right? All these ways of viewing how the, the creation was ordered and how things worked. And this was a shared view, but it, it's still important to note that the Bible, in, in the way that Genesis recounts creation, is very, very distinct. It makes very clear distinctions. And oftentimes, even polemics, even jabs at other creation myths to show them that, hey, although we kind of have the same ideal of kind of the way things are ordered, we need y'all to know that your beliefs are wrong and that Yahweh is the one who did it. But as Trimper Longman points out, in order for us to get the most full in deepest understanding of reading Genesis, we need to understand what the other cultures believed to be able to see a lot of these um, kind of narrative jabs that the authors are taking at these other religions to put Yahweh above and distinguish Yahweh from any of these other so-called gods in these other cultures. And he goes on to point out um, many different examples of these different creation myths, but Today, we're just going to focus on two, and I'm going to quote again from his book, starting with Mesopotamia and their beliefs. He says, quote, The earliest literature in the region of Mesopotamia, indeed, the earliest literature known, comes from ancient Sumer. And though the Sumerians left behind an extensive creation literature, we will bypass the presentation of these creation ideas in favor of focusing on two creation texts from Akkadian literature. Akkadian was the language of the Babylonians and Assyrians. The latter were the heirs to Sumerian ideas and are contemporary with the Israelites during the Old Testament time period. The most significant creation text written in Akkadian gets its name from its first words, when on high, which in Akkadian is Enuma Elish. Even though creation is an essential element of the myth, the ultimate purpose of the composition was to proclaim the exaltation of Marduk to the head of the pantheon. Most scholars today would associate the exaltation of Marduk and the composition of this text to the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, which was in the 12th century BC. The text begins with the theogony, that is, a record of the birth and generations of the gods and goddesses. The oldest deities were Apsu and Tiamat the waters under the earth and of the sea, respectively. So Tiamat is seen as being the waters under the earth and the sea. He goes on and says, whose mingling waters produced the next generation of the gods and goddesses. 
The battle between Marduk and Tiamat is vividly described. At the climax of the conflict, Marduk let loose a wind that distended her body, shooting an arrow into her mouth that tore her belly and extinguished her life. Marduk then turned his attention to the body of Tiamat, which he split into two parts, like a fish for drying. With one half, he fashioned the heavens, and with the other half, the earth. End quote. So, going back to the, the quote from the Enuma Elish tablet that Ben Stanhope pointed out, this was the view that the Mesopotamians had in their creation myth, that these gods were at war, and that it was it was fighting and death and war that brought about the creation of the earth. That's very different from how Genesis describes creation. Just keep that in your mind. On to the Canaanite myths. He says this, quote, Throughout the biblical period, Israelites were tempted to worship the gods and goddesses of the former inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. While David succeeded in removing all significant representatives of these people from Palestine, their relatives persisted to the north in what is today Lebanon and Syria. The most active of the deities of Canaan are well-known Baal, El, Asherah, and Anat. Since Canaanite religion had such a strong pull on the hearts of Israel, it's particularly important to examine its, its concepts of creation. He goes on to say that no creation texts have actually been discovered among the tablets found at ancient Ugarit, the main source of our knowledge of Canaanite literature and religion. Nevertheless, a broken episode of the famous Baal cycle may have originally contained such a narrative, since the extant parts bears a formal similarity to the Enuma Elish, in that it involves a conflict between the chief god of the pantheon, which in this case is Baal, and a sea god, which name is Yam. In the Ugaritic text, we learn that Yam attempts to assume the king kingship of the pantheon and demands Baal as his prisoner. Baal resists and commissions the craftsman god Kothrahasis to make two clubs for him. With these clubs, Baal battles, defeats, and drinks Yam. At this point, the text is broken, but many scholars believe that what followed the defeat of the sea, Yam, was a creation account on analogy with the Enuma Elish. He goes on and says, There are certain general as well as particular similarities between Genesis 1 and 2 and other creation texts. A few key examples will illustrate. First, it is interesting to note that most accounts presume a period of chaos followed by order. In addition, the primordial chaos is pictured as a watery mass. The Enuma Elish describes how Marduk created the cosmos out of the body of Tiamat, the sea, and the Baal myth presumably follows this pattern with Baal creating the world from Yam, also the sea. While the Egyptian myths see the primeval hillock emanating from Nun, the primeval waters. Okay, in quote. So, there was a lot there, and you may have to rewind and listen through to get a more fuller picture, but if you want to Google these things, they're, they're there for the reading. There's a lot of literature and work on this, but what I want to point out is this last little paragraph that we read. Trimper Longman points out how these creation myths have something in similar. They talk about a state of chaos before there's order. And they talk about this chaos as being personified as 
watery mass, a watery chaotic state. Now, think back to Genesis 1 verse 2. What is the first thing that we find in this creation narrative? We find that the earth is wild and waste, and that the earth is depicted as a watery mass. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and God's Spirit hovered over those waters. And God then solves the problem of darkness with light, and then he solves the problems of the chaotic waters by separating them. And then only after that, after God does those two things, then we actually see earth, the land, emerging. So the Bible even depicts creation in its infant state as being this watery chaos that then has to be overcome. But what's enlightening about this is that we know that Israel for sure had contact with these other cultures. And as I pointed out earlier, the Bible is very clear about the fact that Israel even fell into sin and worshipped some of these other gods and fell into these other religions and beliefs. But even putting that aside, even the fact that Israel was surrounded by these cultures, similar to how Christians and believers are surrounded by many different cultures and religions, we share the same cosmology. We share the same idea that the earth is a planet floating in space. And this is no different from how Israel would have shared the same cosmology that the earth had a solid dome sky with waters above it. It's the very same concept, but what's important to note is the distinctions that God makes through his revealed word in the Bible from these other creation myths surrounding Israel. And that distinction is this, is that unlike these other creation myths that have their gods fighting and killing each other, ripping each other apart in order to bring about order from a state of chaos. The God of the Bible, the God of Israel, Yahweh, he doesn't have to do that. Yahweh doesn't have to have any other deity or God or power or influence to be able to bring about order in his creation. Yahweh does not have to fight or kill or defeat any other being in order to bring about creation in order. What does Yahweh have to do to bring about creation in order? Well, Genesis is very clear. All that God has to do is speak. The Bible sets God in this place of unlimited, ultimate power and authority, where just a word from his mouth can bring about order in creation, and life, and peace. He doesn't have to resort to violence, and death, and battle, and help to do this. Israel, on one sense, is distinguishing their God from all these other religions and all these other gods, but also they're taking jabs at these gods because they're saying, oh, hey, I, I, I know that Hey, Canaan and, and Babylon, I know that, that y'all believe that all of this was brought about by, you know, a couple of your gods fighting, right? They have these disputes. Well, our God, Yahweh, uh, he, he didn't fight with anybody because 
there's no one that even comes close to him. He's in a category all by himself, and he's so powerful that all he has to do is utter his commands, and creation simply follows. Yahweh's power is greater than your God's power. And that's the first important thing for us to note when we look at the Bible's creation narrative and all of their surrounding cultures' creation's narrative. So we've taken a very brief survey of the surrounding cultures, religion, and beliefs, and their account of creation. And the biggest thing that has to be overcome, that all of them seem to agree on, is that there's these chaos waters. And we, we can't live. We can't flourish. If these chaos waters are uncontrolled and still roaming free. Now Genesis tells us that these waters were controlled in a very particular way. We're told that God splits them in half. He, he separates them by keeping some of the waters under the rakia, under the sky, and some of them above the rakia, up there in the heavens, above the sky. Now, as we looked at last week, we, we discussed the rakia, and we looked at a passage that depicts God's throne as being above the rakia, amongst the waters that are above the rakia. And this was in Psalm 104, verse 1 through 3. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. So this establishes God's throne. His chambers, it, it, the foundation of it is in these waters that are above the sky. But what else does the Bible tell us about these waters that are above the Rakia? Because I don't know about you, but when I was first hearing all of this, I thought it was nonsense. And I thought, okay, I'm going to need a little bit more than just one psalm uh, to convince me or tell me that there's waters above the sky like that. This is what they really viewed in their cosmology. I'm going to need a little bit more. So let's get a little bit more. Just like we've been doing, let's just make some observations. Let's look at Psalm 148, verse 1 through 6. It's actually a really great psalm. The whole chapter of this is awesome. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. So, here, if we're just looking at what the psalmist is saying, the, the psalmist is calling on creation to praise Yahweh. He calls out the angels, hey, praise Yahweh. He calls out the sun and moon, hey, 
praise the Lord. He calls out the highest heavens and also he calls out the waters above the heavens. And as we pointed out a few episodes ago, heavens is referring to the, the sky. The rakia is called the heavens in Genesis 1. The psalmist is saying, praise him, the highest skies and the waters that are above it. Now, that's really interesting. And, and there's some who have argued that these waters above the rakia in Genesis 1, that it was like a, a temporary vapor canopy or it was some sort of phenomenon that God only needed at the beginning of creation but quickly went away and it was nothing that we could observe today. Um, however, this doesn't work because the psalmist is very, very clear. In verses 5 and 6, I'm going to read it again. He says, Let them, which is all the things he just mentioned, the angels, the host, the sun and moon, the stars of light, the highest heaven, and the waters above the heaven, he says, let all of that praise the name of the Lord. For he, God, commanded that they, all the things before, were created. He has also established them, all the things before, forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. So we're told that the angels, the host, the lights, the sun and moon, the stars, the highest heaven, and those waters were created and they were established forever and ever. So these were not things that were temporary, that were something at one point in the beginning of creation. The psalmist views all of these things as permanent, as permanent as the sun and the moon. Okay, let's make some more observations. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 13. He's talking about God's might and power. He says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he stretched out the heavens, the sky. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. So here again, Another very strong claim about Yahweh that he alone was the power to create all existence. But on top of that, we're told that his voice is powerful and mighty. And the psalmist says, yeah, you know, he, his voice is mighty. You know, mighty enough to shake up the waters in the heavens. I'm going to read that again. Verse 13, when he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. Okay, waters above. All right, let's make some more observations here. Psalm 29, verses 1 through 3, and then also verse 10. says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. Into verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So here the, the scene in this psalm first takes place in heaven, right? It says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. We're, we're, we're talking about heavenly things here. And the heavenly beings here are the sons of God. Other translations will say that. And they're told to give 
God glory and to showcase God's strength. We're then told that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. Now, it it could be that these waters are talking about the sea. And some translations have alluded to that conclusion. However, with this scene taking place in heaven, it seems more likely, given what we've seen about God's throne being in the heavenly waters from the earlier psalm, it seems more likely that the waters in question here are referring to the waters above the rakia, the waters above the heavens. However, that's not convincing. Uh, this case gets even stronger when we read verse 10 of the same exact psalm, that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The way that this poem is devised, it, it really invites us into something interesting. Because we're told that Yahweh is enthroned over the flood, that God's throne is over floodwaters. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like we're being invited to think back to the last time that we were told of a flood in Scripture. And that would be Noah's flood. And if we remember from last week, where exactly are these flood waters coming from? Well, let's look back. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, And the windows of the skies, or the windows of the heavens, were opened. So, connecting everything that we have been looking at so far, with the rakia being a solid dome that holds back the waters above the sky, and this description of Noah's flood, it's starting to make a lot more sense. Because these waters are above the sky. And as we're told in Psalm 104, In verse 3, that God lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. So it makes all the more sense how God is seen to be enthroned over the flood when we're told that his throne is upon the waters that are above the sky. And I don't think this is just a metaphor describing God's sovereignty and authority. It seems like a literal description of God's throne being among the heavenly waters that then rain down upon the earth to flood it. Because we're told that the windows of the heavens were opened. That's what brought the flood waters. And if there are waters above the heavens, above the rakia, and God's throne is depicted as being amongst those waters above the heavens, it can make sense how God is now envisioned as having his throne be over the flood. Dude, the the Bible is so cool. Okay, to further this point, look at how the waters are stopped for Noah's flood as well in Genesis 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the skies were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained. So the very thing that brought the flood, the windows of the rakia, which holds water from above it opening, is the very same way that the flood stops by those very same rakia windows closing so that the waters above it could no longer flood on the earth. I think you get what's going on here. I think you get the point. So the waters above, 
Many biblical texts, as we just laid out, talk about waters being above the heavens, being above the sky. I, I think it's very clear. We're not speaking metaphorically here. The Bible is not talking about some analogy or metaphor. I don't even know what a metaphor of waters being above the heavens would mean. It seems very clear, especially from the biblical text that we read, which repeat the same theme over and over, and the surrounding cultures, cosmologies, that the waters above was a very real reality for ancient Israelites. But I want to end with a quote regarding the ancient Egyptians' view of the waters above the sky um, and some thoughts on what are we supposed to do with all of this? Because trust me, my mind has already thought through and struggled with and tried to reason and understand all these things that I know that is going through your head. Because trust me, I went through the same thing. There's a lot of questions on what are we supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to take the Bible? Is it true? Is it literal? Is it metaphorical? What am I, how am I supposed to understand this? And we'll, we'll answer that briefly. But I want to go ahead and read this quote uh, from Ben Stanhope again in his book, Misinterpreting Genesis. Um, he's quoting another scholar here. And it's just really interesting how the ancient Egyptians viewed the waters above. And honestly, it's pretty intuitive. He says this quote, One hymn from Egyptian text speaks of the Nile in heaven, a hymn to Ra, which is one of their gods. The watery abyss of the sky is a coffin text, and it calls them the celestial waters, and also the pool of the firmament. James P. Allen, the previous president of the International Association of Egyptologists and professor of Egyptology at Brown University, confirms that the ancient Egyptians believed in celestial waters suspended over heaven. He says this, Looking at the sky without telescopes, the Egyptians saw only an undifferentiated background of blue by day or black by night, the same qualities visible in the river Nile. Understandably, therefore, the Egyptians concluded that the sky, like the Nile, was composed of water. The waters of the sky were thought to surround the earth and extend infinitely outward in all directions. The world existed as a single void inside this endless sea. By day, the sun sailed across the surface of the sky ocean. End quote. So although that was an Egyptian's way of viewing the sky and the cosmos, it is just a, a human intuitive way of viewing things if you didn't know any better. You look up and you see a blue sky. Oh, that's blue, just like water down here is blue. And then you see a black sky, just like at night when the water here is black. It's very intuitive. But I think it's very clear by now that these fundamental differences between our cosmology, our way of viewing the universe, in the ancient cosmologies, they're, they're very real, very real differences. And the initial temptation that we may have, and the initial temptation that I ran into, was to think, oh no, the Bible is copying all of these other religions and cultures. The Bible's not inspired. God did not divinely inspire this word because it's copying other cultures and it's 
factually or scientifically incorrect. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Because the fact of the matter is that this wasn't any single culture's way of viewing reality. It was a shared understanding of the world. And the Bible isn't stealing from other cosmologies because this was also Israel's cosmology. This was just the way that ancient people in this area of the earth understood the, the way that reality was ordered. And God was working with the people that he had. God chose not to reveal a bunch of scientific facts that would completely shatter and understand their way of viewing reality. He didn't do that. He allowed human beings to continue to discover this amazing world and reality that he created. That's what God allowed us to do. He allowed us to go out and discover this great world that he created. He allowed us to discover how it is so perfectly fine-tuned and how everything works in a rhythm and how everything is ordered in such a way that life can flourish. God allowed us to discover this on our own. But what God did is he spoke through an ancient culture's way of understanding reality, but still got the theological point across that he alone created it, that he didn't have to resort to destruction and death and fighting to create and order the world. It was simply by his power alone. And this would be no different than if God decided that instead of speaking through ancient Israel authors to bring his word, it'd be no different if God decided that he wanted to speak to 2022 modern Western believers to write his creation story. And he would speak to us in a way that we could understand. Genesis would look like our modern cosmology with galaxies and space and planets and invisible energy forces like gravity. And this would be the way that God would speak through us. But this would also be the same cosmology that would be shared by other religions. It would even be shared by atheists. But the difference would be this, is that although we all share this understanding of what the world and the universe is, with there being planets and clouds and atmospheres and all of these things, we all come to a different conclusion about how it came about. The atheists and the naturalists would say that this just all came about by chance, by purely natural means. There was no divine God or anything that created it. Other religions would say that it was their gods and they would have their own creation stories with an understanding of the cosmology that we have today. And believers today, Christians today, would have the, sh the same shared cosmology as atheists or Buddhists or Muslims, but we would say that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and God alone created it all in a very specific and ordered way. This is no different than how ancient Israelites relayed God's divine word in their understanding with their view of reality. And we would not accuse modern-day Christians of stealing from the cosmology of atheists or Buddhists or Muslims 
simply because they have the same view of what the cosmos is. The difference, though, would be that we would be making a claim that it was one all-powerful, all-knowing God, the God of Israel that created this all on his own. He may have used natural means that we can find out and study through scientific inquiry, but it was God who ordered it all. It was Yahweh, the God above it all. 